Welcome to the sermon podcast of Resurrection Community Church in Virginia Beach. We seek to connect people to God and one another through His Word, and hope this sermon brings you closer to God. Daniel chapter 9, which is perhaps one of the more confusing chapters in, in the Bible, um, uh, to be honest. There's parts of it that are fairly clear, just kind of hard to hear. And then there's parts of it that are not clear at all and the subject of much controversy and discussion. And so we're going to read it, and then we're going to reflect on it for not very long, which means I may well leave you with far more questions than answers when this is done. And so my encouragement to you is if you are left with more questions than answers, that is not a bad thing. Uh, It is a call to continue to reflect on God's word for yourself. It's an invitation to continue to discuss. I would love to talk more about any of these things. So whether it's something specifically in the Bible, you're like, wow, that doesn't make any sense. And Jimmy, you really didn't talk about it. Or whether it's something that I say that you're like, you know what, I don't, I don't really like what I heard. Then just talk to me. I'm always happy to talk. It is always good to understand one another more, to understand um, God's word more. So with that thrilling introduction um, and excitement, here we go uh, to read Daniel chapter 9. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, by descent a Mede, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans. In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that, according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet, must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely, 70 years. Then I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession, saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, we have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and rules. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, and to all the people of the land. To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness, but to us open shame. As at this day, to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and to all Israel, those who are near and those who are far away, in all the lands to which you have driven them, because of the treachery that they have committed against you. To us, O Lord, belongs open shame to our kings, to our princes, and to our fathers, because we have sinned against you. To the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness, for we have rebelled against him and have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God by walking in his laws, which he set before us by his servants, the prophets. All Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, refusing to obey your voice, and the curse and oath that are written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out upon us because we have sinned against him. He has confirmed his words, which he spoke against us and against our rulers who ruled us by bringing upon us a great calamity. For under the whole heaven, there has not been done anything like what has been done against Jerusalem. As it is written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has come upon us. Yet we have not entreated the favor of the Lord our God, turning from our iniquities and gaining insight by your truth. Therefore, the Lord has kept ready the calamity and has brought it upon us. For the Lord our God is righteous in all the works that he has done, and we have not obeyed his voice. 
And now, O Lord, our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and have made a name for yourselves as at this day, we have sinned, we have done wickedly. O Lord, according to all your righteous acts, let your anger and your wrath turn away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy hill, because for our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people have become a byword among all who are around us. Now, therefore, O our God, Listen to the prayers, prayer of your servant and to his pleas for mercy and for your own sake, O Lord. Make your face to shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. O my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations in the city that is called by your name. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for your own sake, O oh my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, and presenting my plea before the Lord my God for the holy hill of my God, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at first, came to me in swift flight at the time of the evening sacrifice. He made me understand, speaking with me and saying, O oh, Daniel, I have now come out to give you insight and understanding. At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out, and I've come to tell it to you, for you are greatly loved. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and prophet, and to anoint a most holy place. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. Then for 62 weeks it shall be built again with squares and moat, but in a troubled time. And after the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood, and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed, and he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week. And for half of the week he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abominations shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your word even when it challenges us. We thank you for your word even when it contains things that are hard to understand. We pray now as we reflect on your word, would you speak to us by the power of your Holy Spirit that this word would not merely be information for our heads, but transformation for our hearts, that it may change the way we think, the way we feel, and the way that we live. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So if you had to pick out the three hardest words to speak in the English language, what might they be? I don't know about you, but I think for many people, the three hardest words are the words, I was wrong. Those are not words that come easily to our lips. Not for any of us. Not for me, not for any of you, not for anyone. It is so, so hard for us to say, I was wrong. And in some ways, even harder to say the things that go with that. I'm sorry. Will you forgive me? I will do things differently in the future. I will think 
differently in the future. In fact, those words are so hard that I, I often tell people and we're talking about whether we're talking about relationships or whether we're talking about political discussions or theological discussions or whatever. And I, I often tell them, like, you know, it's probably too much to expect to, for the other person to actually say, I was wrong. If you see them starting to change their behavior in their mind, you should, you should be happy with that. And I'm not saying that's necessarily the right thing to do. It's just a reflection of the reality of who we are. It's so hard for us to say, I was wrong. But why? Why is it so hard for us to say, I was wrong? For us to say, I'm sorry. And I think it's hard because of a lot of things. And it's a, it can be different things for different people. But it's a lot of really negative emotions that keep us from those things. Sometimes it's fear. We're afraid if we say, I'm sorry, or I was wrong, what is the other person going to do? We may have learned growing up that, you know, the way these conversations are supposed to go, I'm sorry, I forgive you. We can be friends now. But we learn through hard experience that it does not always go that way. And sometimes I was wrong is just followed up with more accusations and more pain and more retribution. Sometimes it's not so much fear as just anxiety. What will happen? What might happen? Or sometimes it's shame. I just cannot stand the thought of admitting that I was wrong. So I'm going to try to cover this up somehow. I'm going to try to wiggle out of it, even when I know it. And we see this, we see this in our lives, in our personal lives, in our relationships with people whom we care about deeply. We see it in our friendships with neighbors and other acquaintances and coworkers. We see it in our, in our cultural discussions with people who are farther flung acquaintance. We see it in our news and our politicians. I've said it before, I'll say it again. How often do you hear a politician say, I was wrong? We just, we, we don't hear it because they're afraid. What happens? Do I get to keep my office then? I mean, I, I sympathize with them. I've, I've said many times, and not particularly over the past year, I do not want to be a politician. I do not want to be trying to make these decisions. But they're still examples of, of the failings of all of us. So here we find in Daniel chapter 9, a just astounding expression of, I was wrong. And not just I was wrong, but we were wrong. And an astounding willingness to own things that Daniel himself did not do. To own the sins of his entire people. Say, we have all been wrong. And I am taking responsibility for that. And I am pleading for your forgiveness. How is it that Daniel can pray this prayer? That he can say the things that are so hard for us to say? And when we, when we ask that question, we say, how can Daniel say this? We can start to see a, a key to, un, to making more sense of this entire chapter. Even the weird stuff at the end about 70 weeks. And I, I think the key to this whole chapter in the Bible is found here in verse, five, or in verse 4. At the beginning of Daniel's prayer, I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession, saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. The great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love 
the key to understanding Daniel chapter 9 and the key to being able to say, I'm sorry, we're sorry. The key to being able to have hope in the midst of that is that our God is a covenant-keeping God. God keeps his covenant. And covenant, may not, that may not be a word that you're super familiar with, uh, though we use it in other, we, we use it in our, we talk about marriage covenants, we talk about real estate covenants. It is a word that we use, but we don't always use it that much or understand it. But basically a covenant is a personal relational agreement. It is personal, it's between persons. It is not just an abstract document, but it is still an agreement with terms and conditions. And the beautiful story of the whole Bible is that God has bound himself to a people through a covenant that he has made with them. And he has set himself in relationship with him. These words, covenant and steadfast love. Steadfast love is a special word for love that is used throughout the Old Testament to express the covenant-keeping love of God. The love that is not dependent on those who are the recipients of that love, but is based on God's own character. And so we see here in Daniel's prayer the great truth of the awesome character of God. And this awesome God who has made a covenant with us, who has bound himself to us in relationship. He first made this covenant, he really first made this covenant with Adam when he made the world and set Adam as, as uh, to have dominion over the world and take responsibility for the animals. And then he renewed it throughout the history of his work with his people, particularly with the people of, Ab of Israel, the children of Abraham, and created a special relationship with him. And then as we continue throughout the Bible, even as they violated that covenant time and time again, as we see here in Daniel, uh, in Daniel chapter 9, he renewed that covenant through Jesus. And through Jesus, he said he made it into a new covenant with all those who followed Jesus, who he has set his name on to make his people. So we have a covenant-keeping God. And so when we see here, how can we admit that we were wrong? Because we don't like to say those words, but we know those words. We know that we're wrong. And that's where all the problems come from. That's where all the shame and the guilt and the fear. We know we're wrong, but we're not willing to say that we're wrong. But when we keep our eyes on our covenant-keeping God and reflect on his character, then we are able to admit that we are wrong. We are able to confess our sins and we are able to find mercy and forgiveness from this great and awesome God. So briefly then to reflect on the, the aspects of this covenant-keeping God, what do we see here? We see first that God is both righteous and merciful. He is, righteous, he is a righteous, holy God and a merciful God. We see that God sets us in community and we see that God is bringing sin to an end. God is righteous and merciful. God sets us in community, and God is bringing sin to an end. So first we see that he's righteous and merciful. This is, as Daniel repeats it several times throughout here, after he says, you're a great and awesome God who keeps covenant. We have sinned. We have not listened. Verse 7, to you, O Lord, belongs righteousness. Verse 8, to us belongs open shame. Verse 9, to the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness. So our covenant-keeping God, how is he characterized? He is righteous in contrast to our unrighteousness, but he is also merciful and forgiving. 
So that does two things for us. Recognizing that God is righteous and merciful. First, recognizing God's righteousness is a challenge to us. It is a call to us that I said we, we know that we're wrong and we mostly do know that we're wrong. But sometimes God's word has to remind us that we are wrong. And it is a challenge first to admit to ourselves that yes, God is righteous and holy. And while we are tempted as people to compare ourselves to other people, and it would have been easy for Daniel, Daniel, I mean Daniel, Daniel, Daniel is a great guy, right? Daniel is bold and courageous. He speaks truth to kings. He prays three times a day. He goes to the lion's den for his faith. And his faithful companions, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who go into the furnace, like these are good guys. It would be easy for them to say, we're not like all those other people who got us in trouble, the bad rulers of Israel back then, or even the ones who don't care now in Babylon who have forgotten about God. We're the good guys. But Daniel knows that our standard is not to compare ourselves to other people. Our standard is to compare ourselves to the righteousness of God. And when we compare ourselves to his perfect righteousness, whether it's in the abstract righteousness of God and what we know to be right from his commandments and laws, or more clearly, the lived out righteousness of Jesus on earth, when we see his perfect life and the way that he interacted with those who hurt him and attacked him, the way he loved and served with all of his life, say, no, no, I have fallen short. I have fallen short. But God is both righteous and merciful. So we can recognize our sin, and yet we can admit it and bring it to him. Because of his covenant, because we know that nothing will change his love for us. And so Daniel can make this plea with confidence. As he pleads earnestly and desperately for God's mercy and forgiveness, he knows that God will answer. Because God is a merciful God, and he's shown that time and time again. So what do we do with that? The, I mean, the, the great thing about this, 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 uh, this chapter is challenging. The application is very simple. We must confess our sins. This is the, this is the beauty of our, in our worship service. This is why we confess our sins every time we come together. But it's not just what we do on Sunday mornings. We must make a habit of confession, of reflecting where have we hurt others? Where do we need to go to them and ask forgiveness? And we can do that because we have confidence ultimately in the God who is righteous and commands it because we have not lived up, but is merciful and will show us grace and forgiveness in the midst of that. And so we can confess our sins even to others, knowing that however they respond, our covenant-keeping God will forgive us and he will be there with us. So God is righteous and merciful. The second beautiful truth here about our covenant God is that God sets us in community. And, and usually when we say God sets us in community, it's a nice, happy-feeling thing. It's like, great, I have friends. I have people to take care of me. That's true. But that's not the part of community that we see here in Daniel chapter 9. The part of community we see here in Daniel chapter 9 is that because God has set us in community, we take responsibility for the actions of our community. That we are not just individuals on our own. Moreover, we, are not just, we don't even necessarily get to just choose who we're united with. Like we, we get the shared responsibility thing. We get this in a family, right? If our kids do something wrong, if they break something, we have to fix it. If our spouse incurs a debt, we're still responsible for paying it. But in our human condition, we, we are kind of okay with those because we kind of pick those relationships. And sometimes when we get really tired of them, 
you know, hopefully not families, though sometimes even families, but certainly other voluntary associations, we, we just pull out of them. We say, I'm not going to be responsible for those people anymore. And this is the, the painful reality of our world is that we don't like to take responsibility for others. We're worried about our own shame for the things we've done wrong. So we are very quick to pull out of things. We're very quick to cast people off. This is one of those the impulses behind what people have started to call cancel culture, where people get canceled because they've done something wrong, said something wrong, and they get cast out. Now, sometimes they're being cast out by those who disagreed with them anyway, which you know that doesn't necessarily mean that much. But sometimes it's from within their own communities. You said something wrong, away with you. But that is not what God calls us to in community. God has set us in community that we take responsibility for our community. And we admit that our community has done wrong. Now, this, this is a tricky and fraught issue. And this is where, when I was saying before, like you might be left with more questions, this is where you're going to be left with more questions. And I'm not going to be able to answer them all right now. But I would, I would love to engage and embrace it more. But just think about, we get this in families, and we apologize for our families. We hold debt, we pay debts, we make rep, uh, repairs for our families, and then just start expanding that to the other ways that God has set in communities, and you can start to get some of the idea. And we see here Daniel confessing the sin of himself and his people. Now, here's what's interesting and clear about what Daniel has done. The, the, the thing that's dangerous when we start talking about corporate confession is it can become a weapon. You can say about those who may have some association with you, you can make kind of like a self-righteous confession. Like, I'm going to confess the sins of these people. And like, it doesn't work that way. That's not what Daniel is doing. Daniel owns the sin for himself. Yes, these may not all be sins that he himself has committed, but he owns it and mourns it as part of the community. I can't answer all the questions, but I can give you a beautiful example of what this looks like. And it comes from the life, not of our specific church here at Resurrection, but the life of our denomination that we're a part of. And this came in, uh, in 2015, uh, what we call our General Assembly uh, in uh, Chattanooga, Tennessee. It was the meeting of all pastors and churches of our denominations, representatives from the churches all get together. And... We brought forth, we, we, it's, there's, you know, it's, it's parliamentary, it's business and procedures and all this, but we brought forth a resolution there calling us as a denomination to repent for the ways that we had not cared, we'd not, we just ignored the civil rights movement in the 60s. It was on the 50th anniversary of, I think the Voting Rights Act um, was when this was first brought forward. And so as a denomination, the interesting thing about this is that, you know, our church, Resurrection Community Church, only started in 2019. Formerly, our denomination, the Presbyterian Church in America, started in 1973. But throughout the history of our denomination, we've said that we are a continuing church. We are part of what was previously known as the Southern Presbyterian Church. And many of our churches, many of our pastors, many of our elders were members of that Southern Presbyterian Church. And they left that church for a whole variety of reasons and started the Presbyterian Church in America. But the Southern Presbyterian Church was no friend of the civil rights movement. There may have been isolated examples and examples of people doing great things, 
But at that general assembly at 20, in 2015, we, we cried out and we recognized. And there was a beautiful testimony from one of our older ministers that I, I hope I never forget. As we were discussing this and debating it, because you know, we, we debate everything. It's just what we do. But he came to the microphone and he said, look, I was there from the beginning. I was there in the 60s. And no, we were not actively racist. We did not set out to create a segregated denomination or anything like that. But we did not lift a finger to help our black brothers and sisters. And so I come before you now to say, yes, we must do this. We must do this as a body, not as a, as a, as a hammer against those guys back then, but saying we are part of one body. And the things that we did back then that many of us today would have to say if we were there back then, we probably would have done the same things if we're being honest. We like to think that we wouldn't have, but we might have. And we can see even to the present day how the effects continue to carry on, how we continue to exhibit prejudice and bias. And so that even to this day in our denomination that has nearly 5,000 pastors, only 50 of them are African-American. 1% of all the pastors in our denomination. Now, of course, we would like to change that. We're working towards changing that. We're trying to reflect more the beauty of our country, the beauty of who God has made us to be. But that starts with honesty. It starts with confession, as Daniel shows us here, to say, as a community, as a people, we're coming from this place, and we need God's mercy and forgiveness. So God sets us in community. It's a beautiful truth. Sometimes it's a challenging truth. We own the beauty, we own the hardship, we confess our sins honestly and genuinely and cry to God for forgiveness. Lastly, and very, very quickly, because uh, our time is coming to an end, but I, I can't not say anything about the end of Daniel chapter 9. Uh, the end of the, the 70 weeks here in verses 24 through 27. This is the source of so much confusion in the church, and which is where I would like to say, oh, let me just clear that up for you. The problem is, it's the source of so much confusion because nobody understands it, and nobody's sure. And to make matters worse, Daniel says he did understand it. But it doesn't make sense to us, and has been a source of questions and dispute and controversy throughout all of church history. If you're familiar with uh, the Left Behind books from the late 80s, early 90s, and kind of this, the idea of a very specific timeline of events at the end of time, this is a big place where that comes from. Maybe that's right. Maybe it's not. When you actually read it here, you're like, it doesn't sound as clear as it does as some people make it out to be. It's just not clear. So I'm not saying this is right or this is wrong about what the end of the world might look like. But I hope that you see now, reading this in context, how this is supposed to function in Daniel chapter 9. This is God's answer to Daniel's prayer for mercy and forgiveness. This is not just an abstract prophecy. Daniel, let me tell you what's going to happen. This is the answer. And the answer is quite clear. We see it in verse 24. Seventy weeks are decreed to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and prophet, and to anoint a most holy place. Whatever the details of the end of time may be, whatever parts of this applied right to Daniel's time, to the time of Jesus, to sometime in the future, the ultimate end is clear, that God is bringing sin to an end. And this is our ultimate hope for mercy. This is our ultimate hope that allows us to confess our sin. Because not only is God saying your sins are forgiven, 
He's saying that one day your sin will be ended and you will sin no more. And so we feel the, the shame and the tension and the guilt and the fear and the, can I make up for my sin? What can I do to atone for my sin? What can I do to make it better? And God says, there's nothing you can do to make it better, but I am going to bring it to an end. And so we find hope here in the midst of national turmoil, in the midst of division and uncertainty, in a time where even within the church, we can't always agree on what are the facts, but we can find hope that our God has made a covenant with all of us. Those whom we get along with, those whom we don't get along with. He has brought us together in one body. And in that body that he's set us in community, we take responsibility for one another. We see his character, his righteousness and mercy. And so we can confess our sins. We can confess our sins individually and we can confess our sins corporately. And we can know that he is bringing sin to an end. And this is the beauty of the Lord's Supper. Philip, you can go ahead and come on up here. We're going to go straight into this. And this is the beauty of the Lord's Supper. I said that God has made his covenants throughout all of history with his people and he continues to renew them. This table is the final renewal of his covenant that he gives us to renew every Sunday that we take of it. That when Jesus came, he said, after he took the bread and he broke it and he said, this is my body which is given for you. Take, eat as often as you do this and do so in remembrance of me. And then after supper, he took the cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. It is a covenant. It is God's promise of relationship, his promise of forgiveness for your sins and his promise that he is bringing sin to an end. Thank you for listening to this sermon podcast from Resurrection Community Church. To learn more about our church and how you can connect with God and others, please visit resurrectionvb.org.